and welcome to another episode of the 1201 podcast. We are coming to you now out of lockdown. The tier system has been reintroduced and I'm joined today by Mr. Bradley Alsop. Hi folks. Mr. Ollie Walwyn. Hello there everyone. And Callum Watt. Good evening. So as I say, we are going to touch on the lifting of the lockdown later on but we're going to start off the podcast talking about the Labour Party so there's been a number of accusations being thrown around and a number of CLPs are very much unhappy obviously since the expulsion of Jeremy Corbyn and the whip still being withheld from him despite his Labour Party membership being reinstated this has really exploded in the last couple of weeks we're still seeing it rumbling on We've now seen a number of CLPs passing votes of no confidence in Keir Starmer. Angela Rayner has come out and said that they will be willing to expel thousands of members if needs be. And there was a walkout a couple of weeks ago in the National Executive Committee because of the election of the chair. Now, to the people on the outside of the party, this seems like an absolute mess. And if you look at the polling data, some pollsters have been looking at the Labour Party and the public perceptions of this. And they've, well, the general perception is that the Labour Party is now divided amongst the public. People, when Keir Starmer came into power, into office in, in uh, earlier this year, saw the party as rather much together. But now over the last few weeks and months, we've seen that people see the party as divided. So I'm going to ask this very simple question initially. Bradley, is the Labour Party divided? I, I mean, it, it is. Um, I, d- I don't think it's necessarily divided on the issue of anti-Semitism. Um, I think that the number of people that, you know, are d- don't think we need to do anything about anti-Semitism or, or don't think anti-Semitism is a problem. I, I think those people are actually re- relatively small. There, there are people out there on the, on the left that that think everything is, you know, it's all a conspiracy or, or it's all made up. Those people do exist and, and they're wrong. Um, but I, I, from what I've seen personally, you know, I, I don't know significant polling on this or anything, but I, I don't really think they're a significant um, or, or, you know, very, very well put together group of people within the party yet. So I don't really think that that's what the division is in the party. Uh, you know, and that's certainly not the sort of group that Corbyn's part of. Cor- Corbyn is at no point deny that anti-Semitism exists in the party and that, it, that it's wrong and that it needs to be dealt with. So, yes, we are divided, but but not on that. I think what we are divided on is, um, I think, increasingly the approach that Starmer has taken um, as a leader. It's increasingly a sort of quite authoritarian approach, I think, um, is, is the way he's taken. Um, I think out of mixed reasoning, I think part of the reason is because he, he has seen what the anti-Semitism... Um, crisis did to, to Corbyn and, it, and his own personal ratings. It, it absolutely destroyed any sort of pretense that Corbyn had in, in the eyes of many, not necessarily correctly, but it destroyed any sort of pretense he had to be, you know, sort of like an honest, decent politician, um, which actually, you know, was probably Corbyn's main selling point to a lot of people was that, he, you know, he was a guy of integrity and, and firmly believed in, in a lot of just causes, whatever else you may think of them. I think the anti-Semitism crisis really ruined that appeal that he had. So I think Starmer has seen that, and, he, and he's decided the, the way to, to avoid it is to is to have a, a basically a, a, a it's almost more it's more than a zero tolerance policy. I think is what he's done now. Um, but but I do think what that's led him to is increasingly sort of quite authoritarian approaches. Um, and I think that's that at the moment is the main division of the party is about um, how, how Starmer has treated this issue, but I think also what that signals for how in general the leadership is now treating the left of the party, um, and and um, treating the legacy of Corbynism, I think, is, is how many people will see it. Um, so I, I think that's where, where a key dividing line is. Um, and and I, I do also think that there's sort of a, a a tendency to sort of not... Well, I, I think actually not even a tendency. What we are now seeing is is basically the suggestion that we can't really debate um, anti-Semitism as, as CRPs at this point. You know, CRPs are being told and, and Labour members are being told that they, they can't really debate issues around anti-Semitism at this point now. Which I think is quite a dangerous place for us to be because, you know, the, you know, they dictate from the general secretary that CRPs aren't to accept motions. I think that the, the general suggestion was that they they shouldn't they shouldn't have those motions discussed at CRPs because 
of the potential for those motions to, to result in in unacceptable behaviour, i.e., you know, if you're having a debate around Corbyn suspension, you could see how that might lead to, to members making anti-Semitic comments. I think that's true, that it does open the potential for that. Um, but the way to deal with that is to have a, you know, a, a, a good chair and a, and a firm set of rules around what is acceptable behaviour and acceptable language and what isn't. And that, that should be clearly communicated to members. I, I don't think the appropriate response to that is to, is to not allow any discussion about anything at all. And I could sort of understand it when it was a disciplinary process, and, and Corbyn, you know, was in a in a formal disciplinary process. And but that's not the case anymore. That that's settled, and now it's about whether we should have the whip suspended from him or not, which is, you know, ultimately a political decision. Um, so I, I I I'm worried about this idea that CRPs can't debate things like that, which have, you know, quite quite significant implications for for party democracy and and for wider politics as well. So I think that's where the division is at the moment, is over how the leadership has handled this issue and what that signals for how the left um, will be treated by, by the leadership in, in the coming months and years, I think. Hmm. Yeah, and I think that that's the important distinction that, that is, is sometimes not made by people, is that actually the, the outrage is not due to the, the report that was recently released. Actually, the report has got a number of, 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 of comments and, and improvements that we must carry out. And I, I feel personally that actually we're, we're failing to really get to grips with what that report is saying because we're too busy fighting amongst ourselves, too busy arguing about um, who said what, when actually the, the, the comments that have been made by Jeremy Corbyn, they were, they were misled. They were, they, were, they were stupid, in my opinion, given how near to the release of that report is and how much hurt the issue of anti-Semitism has caused the Jewish community and Jewish members of, of, of our party. But, and I think we need to be acting on that. And that, as it currently stands, I don't feel that that's, that's currently at the forefront of people's minds. Instead, this, this infighting, this, this, this point scoring, this finger pointing is, is, is all distracting from that. I Ollie, I just wanted to ask you, as, as somebody that isn't a member of the party, but somebody that, that would be likely to vote for voting for the Labour Party, do you feel that this damages your confidence in any Labour candidates or in the Labour Party to be that progressive, what we would call probably forward thinking and, and, and sensible party? Um, yeah, I would absolutely say it damages my confidence in them as a, as a democratic party, even, which I'd I'd consider that quite a fundamental thing, and I'm sure many, many people would as well. Um, I mean, the member base—I I don't know—I I can't speak for you know hundreds of thousands of people, but you know, a vast majority of them joined the party to under Jeremy Corbyn's leadership and under those very po popular policies that were put forward in 2017 and 2019. Um, and yeah. Can can Keir Starmer even be considered a democratic leader anymore? Like that's my question. That's how far we've kind of just reversed, almost um, regressed. Um, democracy and freedom of speech should be the, the pillar, the pillar stone of the party. Um, he's completely ignored uh, HMRC's suggestion not to uh, interfere in the the party disciplinary process. He's virtually sent us a, a gagging order on on members and, and CLPs around the, the country, which they're understandably furious on. I mean, Keir Starmer's allowed to comment uh, on what's been been happening. David Evans is allowed to comment on it, but no one else is apparently, apart from maybe some of the Labour right. And uh, yeah, it does it does look shambolic to uh, to an outsider and to, probably to the majority of the public. The public, which is why his his ratings as leader have, have gone down. He's just he's dug himself this this hole which is just a no-win situation for anyone um, and I think it's extremely damaging to confidence and I don't know how he's I don't know I don't know what his end game is, is here really I mean he's given himself three months um, to to determine like what rule Corbyn broke which I, I, I just don't understand what he's gonna pull out the bag whether he's just hoping everyone's just forgotten about it in that time or or what, but it, it is shambolic, and yeah, it's, it's damaged confidence, my confidence in the party. Yeah, and, and I think, as I say, it's, it's as, as a party, as, as a 
as an electoral force, ultimately, you've got to have your eye on how are you going to make a difference in society? How are you going to win seats? How are you going to influence councils? How are you going to influence regional bodies? How are you going to influence the, the, the Houses of Parliament? And that currently is not going to happen if the party continues to damage itself, continues to damage its standing, continues to infight and bitterly argue over the points of, of, of one member's comments or another. And if they have been anti-Semitic, then they leave the party. I think that they just need to be really clear on that. And as it currently stands, because people are picking up on, on points like Jeremy Corbyn's, as I said before, which was stupid to say it, but it wasn't anti-Semitic. It was stupid and it was it was it was potentially hurtful for some communities, but it wasn't anti-Semitic. And I don't think that he should have had the whip still held back from him. But Bradley, I'd like to ask, do you think that as as it stands, it, tens of well, lots of CLPs have actually had votes of no confidence in Starmer's leadership. Do you think that those are justified at all? Do you think that now is the time for votes of no confidence or is it now the time for trying to sort this out internally without essentially throwing out the leader that we've only elected this year? I mean, I can perfectly understand why CRPs have fat moves to do this. You know, I, I'm angry at the way Starman has behaved throughout this. So I, I think there's a question of whether the question of whether it's justified, I suppose, is a slightly different question as to whether it's politically savvy at the moment. Um, and I suppose my question will be, what, what will be the end result of a vote and a confidence in Starmer? Uh, you know, the, the left is is in no position to put forward a coherent, organised campaign and, and, and have a clear candidate that's got the charisma and the ability and, and, and all the rest of it. So um, I, I, I can understand why people are doing it. I think there's probably an argument that it's justified in terms of the way he's behaved. Um, but personally, is, is, it, is it a useful thing for us to do? Is it going to actually result in anything i think the the end result of it at this moment in time with how the left is currently arrayed it will probably result in starmer getting an additional mandate and, and winning a leadership contest again so it, it's certainly not something i'm going to be calling for I, I don't think it's necessarily where we need to be putting our energies at the moment yeah and i, I i'm probably in the same area as you there I'm, I'm conscious callum has got his hand up but i don't know if he's going to be able to speak because we've got a few technical issues callum well, we'll find out, won't we? Can you hear me? Am I yeah, being we got you. There we go. Okay. Yeah, I, I was just going to say. I mean, I think we said in the in the last podcast to some extent um, how you know it may have been. Um, and then obviously we get the result of that. What we have seen is Jeremy Corbyn go through a fair disciplinary process with a balanced panel. Um, so no, you know, uh, it wasn't just a, a Corbynite panel that exonerated him. There were Starmer supporters on there as well, um, quite vociferous right wingers apparently, um, and being advised by a barrister, um, effectively coming to a conclusion that was no case to answer, um, and so and and. What his Sama's subsequent refusal then to give Jeremy Corbyn the whip then kind of looks a bit petulant, I suppose you you could argue. Um, I'm sure he probably believes that he's doing the right thing, but ultimately, if he's got no case, if Jeremy Corbyn has no case to answer at some point, Jeremy Corbyn's going to have to be let back into the PLP, um, and then it will. I suppose Starmer might be hoping that Jeremy Corbyn will say or do something in the meantime that will justify um, keeping him out of the PLP or, or having another shot at throwing him out of the party. But Jeremy Corbyn's not stupid. Um, you know, he's not. He's probably going to be staying very quiet over the next couple of months. One imagines not to give them any excuse. So, effectively, this is this is somewhat thrown his judgment uh, into into question. Um, it it's absolutely appalling party management um, at, at a base level. People are now looking at him and going, "Well, I kind of can I really trust this guy?" Um, and but I mean, the, I guess the only the only positive thing I could say to sort of 
reclaim it is that um, in very different ways, Jeremy Corbyn's first year was also extremely chaotic um, when he took charge of the party. Um, for for was trying to reach out to all sections of the party, and those sections of the party didn't particularly want to reach out to him. Uh, and in this case, the uh, the left of the party wanted to reach out to Starmer, um, and Starmer seems to have slapped that hand away. Um, but you know, perhaps much like Corbyn, um, once he has had a year or so in office, uh, if he survives that long, uh, at this point maybe maybe things will begin to change. But I do think it's um, I do think it's quite wrong. To try and say that CLPs shouldn't be allowed to debate the issue. The issue. Obviously, as a CLP secretary, I myself, I got that email, um, and it's very, very flimsy uh, grounds for uh, for denying members the ability to speak on this issue. Um, and honestly, I think it's a tremendous waste of time. Um, as you say, we have a, a lot more important things to talk about. Um, but uh, I guess the ball's in, in Keir Starmer's court in that respect. Yeah, and and I, I don't know whether you you dipped out during when I said it, but I was talking about the polls at the start and that the clear, sudden lack of confidence in, in Keir Starmer amongst the, the public and a, and a clear... Um, perception amongst the public that the the Labour Party is now divided would you agree that it's it's divided whether it be over this issue or 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 over its historical factional lines I think I mean it certainly looks that way externally and one factor that you also have to bear in mind is that you know obviously um, some CLPs are meeting virtually obviously a lot of them have passed motions and so on um so it's quite hard to tell what uh, um, ordinary he's cut out for me. I don't know if he has anyone else. Yeah, and he's gone for me as well. I was hoping he would pop back in. I can, I can, I can still hear you. Can you hear me? Oh, there we go. You're back. You're back now. Yeah. Where was I? Do continue. Uh, well, yes. Yeah, so I, I was just saying. So it's it's a bit difficult, really, to tell exactly what Labour Party members are thinking. But I would imagine uh, they, a lot of them, probably have a, a similar analysis um, to what I've been talking about, um, which is. You know that we would rather be. The common term is focusing our fire on the Tories rather than uh, having this uh, internal scuffle at the at the top of the party. I think that's probably probably the view, and that most people would rather move on from it one way or the other. Um, so I, I think I mean for the best thing for party unity would be to uh, to give Corbyn the whip back. At the end of the day, I think that would calm a lot of nerves. Uh, I suspect, you know, that if it, if this move was intended to push the left out of the party, well, they've succeeded in the sense that apparently we've lost ten percent of our members. But I would note that a lot of those people are the sorts of people who will. I would say a lot of those people are very principled people, who. Uh, you know, did maybe were uh, offended by the initial suspension, but the second round of this particular saga has probably made people think again and say, "Well, hang on a minute. If he's if he's that weak, <laughs> maybe maybe actually, you know, there's there's a chance of uh, winning this battle, um, especially as Corbyn is now back as a member of the party." It's just really a matter of time and running down the clock um, until Starmer has to let him back into the PLP. Um, so if it was a factional attempt to get the left out of the party, it's utterly failed. So I think the Labour Party will eventually emerge from this more united, even if it looks divided at the moment. That's a, a nice positive note to end that section on. So... 
what the Tories like to be doing at the moment is obviously nicking and watering down Labour policies. And it seems that this has also happened in regards to the so-called Green Industrial Revolution. So the government in the last week or so put out what they call their 10-point plan. And in this 10-point plan, they're committing to invest in wind energy, hydrogen power, nuclear power, vehicles to be reduced down to low carbon levels and obviously phasing out the petrol and diesel engine cars by 2030, investing in public transport, what they're calling a jet zero and green ships approach. They're investing in green buildings, a carbon capture system, protecting the natural environment and green innovation. Now, Bradley, I know you wanted to lead on this. Is this good enough to combat the climate crisis? And do we believe that the Tories are going to put the money where their mouth is? Uh, well, I mean, it, it obviously isn't just about money, but money is a is it's it's a necessary but not sufficient sort of pledge, isn't it? And and from my understanding of it, the, the Tories are only currently really committing in terms of hard cash to twelve billion, um, which which sounds which sounds like a lot of money, but but it's not really in the scale of climate change. It, it's it's not it's not a, it's barely even a drop in the ocean, really. Um, now I think it should be said as well that Labour's pledges are are better. Um, but but they're not much better. So I think at the moment the, the Labour Party's um, uh, spending plans in terms of combating climate change are, are in the area of around thirty billion, which is obviously significantly more than the Tories. But it's it's still really a drop in the ocean of the sort of the sort of fiscal commitment we need to to be combating climate change. Um, I I think I I think it also shows. Uh, so I think in terms of Labour and and, and the thirty billion pledge and and. I think you know it, it's clear from recent sort of policy documents that the Labour Party we we are moving or edging back from from the sort of heights of the 2019 sort of very you know quite radical sort of Green New Deal sort of optimism um, that that was and it must be said a lot of the Green New Deal stuff was was part of um, a, a long period of grassroots campaigning by by the Labour for a Green New Deal campaign group and, and other organisations and. Um, so I, I think Labour, it, it's clear that Labour is rowing back a little bit on that and, and we're not, um, whilst it's clear that Labour is 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 trying to commit to, to tackling climate change, it doesn't seem to be as willing to make the sort of quite bold and transformative policy pledges that we sort of saw coming out of the 2019 conference and and and, and we talked about a lot in, in the 2019 general election. Um, I, I think that's still probably very much an open door. I think we're still very much within... Um, we're still very much within, you know, scope for the left to be able to push back on that and to make sure. I mean, even twenty nineteen, we still need to go further, you know. But it was a it was a pretty good start what we had in twenty nineteen, and for for me, that's what I'd love to see. Um, that's what I'd love to see the left be able to put its energy in at the party, in instead of um, in, instead of you know these sort of factional fights and and, and issues around whether Corbyn should be suspended or not. Which I do, you know, not saying we shouldn't be arguing that. I do think actually there is an important matter of principle around how Starmer's has acted that, that needs to be challenged by the left. But I, I'd much rather be able to put energy as as, as the left nationally in, in moving our environmental policy to even more radical heights than we had in the 2019 manifesto. Um, and and I, I'm worried the more that I focus on Starmer is around how he's acting in Corbyn and all this sort of stuff that that we miss that fine detail and we and we miss that those policy fights at a national level that we need to be having to to ensure that actually you know Starmer had his 10 pledges at, 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 when he ran for leader we need to be holding his feet to the fire on those and actually pushing him in an even more radical direction that that's what the purpose of it to me a, a a radical left within the Labour Party is if if we're not doing that what's the point and I would say the other thing is you know it, it's clearly a, a sort of shot across the bow from the Tories um I mean, you know, Boris has even been using the. It's been he's been using our language. He's been talking about a green industrial revolution. I think the the policy pledges that the Tories are putting forward to back that up are, are, don't justify the term, but uh, it, it's clearly a, an attempt by Boris to sort of take over some of that ground before Starmer's properly positioned himself there. Um, and again, that becomes easier for Boris the longer that Starmer and Labour are embroiled in internal conflict. It becomes easier for the Tories to stake out some of their land. And I think I think Boris is actually quite uniquely suited to that as a Tory Prime Minister. Um, 
you know, you, you think of, uh, I see every few days it comes up on my newsfeed, the, the infamous now tweet with Boris with his two thumbs up on January 1st saying this is going to be a great year for Britain at the start, at the start of 2020, which obviously was not true. Um, but I, I think Boris is quite good at channeling this sort of Britain is fantastic, we can be more, um, you know, we can do more, we can achieve more. I think he's quite good at, at, at sort of, pledging that in a way that maybe Tories aren't always and Theresa May certainly wasn't able to do. So I do think that the that, that Starmer and Labour are are at risk of that. And I think the way we combated that before was having quite radical policy um, and, and you know, having having really radical policy um, proposals. But I think that if we begin to water down policy, as we maybe have seen with some recent stuff around the environment, we become even more at risk of, of Boris's sort of enthusiasm and, and, and his sort of, yes, we're, we're fantastic and all that sort of stuff. Mm. Ollie, you wanted to come in? Yeah. Um, yeah, there's quite a few things I'd like to say about this. Um, I mean, two years ago, um, Boris Johnson announcing a, a 10 point green plan, you know, green industrial revolution, as he calls it, would have, would have been unthinkable. Um, uh, and I think, in a way, yeah, it's as Bradley says, um, he's kind of almost stolen Labour's messaging with the language that he's using. And, and we know that these policies are popular because they're, they're a major part of the, the 2017 and the 2019 um, Labour manifesto. Um, yeah, I mean, it's not... It's not what we need, but um, it's it's almost remarkable to think that it's it's going in this direction, even though um, you know Boris Johnson himself has a terrible track record on the environment. Um, you know he's accepted like tens of thousands of pounds in in like money from you know climate denial science um, like organisations and institutions. Um, but yeah, in any case, obviously, uh, Labour's plan is more ambitious, not by that much. I think it's more, it's almost kind of, it's quite relevant to look to uh, what France and Germany are doing, who are investing, you know, tens of billions of, do- of euros in the face of, you know, their, their jobs emergency and, and the wider climate emergency. And it would be argued that, I mean, I think it, their, uh, their plans are, many billions of dollars uh, sorry of euros over the next few years i can't remember the exact figure but um compared to um 12 billion over several years it's 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 really not it's like a drop in the ocean almost um obviously it's a step in the right direction but um yeah it's 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 kind of worrying in some ways that he, he's taking advantage of that as bradley says that Keir Starmer and the Labour Party at the moment just aren't talking about this. It's just this is not on the agenda um, because they're so preoccupied with other issues, um, which arguably aren't as important as you know, um, like environmental collapse and and the upcoming challenges that we face in the climate emergency. Um, I think it's also a point to say that most of this was already an, like announced, which. Um, which kind of adds to the idea that it's just, it's not enough. It's just, it's almost repackaged. Um, it's been described by a few people as a, a pale imitation of, of what's needed out of a, a green stimulus package. It's just, I think it was vague and underpowered as Caroline Lucas said, she said it's a shopping list, not a plan to address the climate emergency and it only commits a fraction of the necessary resources. Um, I think that something something that's also important, I think, to note is next year is COP26, which is the 26th um, UN climate conference of parties. Um, and it's set to be the first global stock take, um, which was outlined in the Paris Agreement. And it was meant to be last month in November 2020, but obviously it was delayed by a year, which um, is quite a, a crucial, kind of a, an excruciating delay for the climate. Um so how are we meant to lead by example almost if if we're just not up to scratch as a as a global leader in in environmental policy and in environmental technology because i think that's going to be something quite important where we have you know hundreds of countries at a, an international event which is arguably the biggest international event of of uh, Boris Johnson's tenure as prime minister 
And if if we're just shown to um, to not be up to scratch on our environmental policy and probably yeah, I'd say be a, a world leader in it as well. I just I don't I don't see how we can lead by example in that respect. Yeah, and I think that there's so many great points you made there, Ollie, but I think sort of being a world leader is something that we have discussed on this podcast. It's something that's being discussed by some politicians in this country and indeed politicians in, in other countries. And I think the the whole concept of that is, is great. And if only we could really truly commit to it. But at the moment, I feel like it's it's just words coming out of the mouths of, of, of Boris Johnson. It's a bit like the world leading, uh, world beating testing system. It's it's all just sort of jingoistic. We're better than you, but there's not much substance to it. So I really hope that this is the starting point and a good foundation to build on. But we need so much more. And as I said at the start. And obviously it isn't just about money, but we do need a proper commitment to this, both financially and, and I suppose, politically as well. Bradley? Yeah, um, I, I've just found it was a, a piece on Labour Hub that I, I read a couple of weeks ago. Um, and I think some of the points they make about uh, basically the, the argument of the article um, by Angus Satow. Um, it, it basically says that it, it's a clear signal, Labour's recent report um, on the environment of it of it rowing back on, on sort of the radical policy in 2019. Um, so some of the points they highlight is, one, one the 30 billion that's pledged is actually um, Labour suggesting that the government brings forward money already pledged to the issue. So it's not actually even um, completely new spending, strictly speaking. Um, they also talk about how that there's not much or, or any, I think, mention of the 2030 decarbonisation target um, in, in the report. And, and they often talk about the 2050 um, target, which obviously, um, you know, getting a focus of 2030 was a massive win in, in the 2019 conference and, and, and a, mass, a massive policy win for, for activists there. Um, and, and there's a number of issues in terms of um, the number of homes being insulated that it, that it talks about, um, uh, you know, down from 27 million to 7 million um, and no real mention of public ownership of, of energy and water and, and, and all that sort of thing as well. Um, so it, it's not even just in terms of the money that's the problem. I think it's the, the focus, the, the, the class focus and, and the empowering workers focus, um, as well as the ambitions in terms of targets as well. I think and I, I don't think this means all of those things are gone forever from the Labour Party because, you know, these things have been passed in, in conference and, and there's that tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of activists that are committed to them and that were inspired by them. Um, but what it does show is it's not necessarily a, a focus or a priority for the leadership at the moment um, and, and other sections of the party. And it, and it shows that it's something that we need to be mobilised around as the left and, and to be pushing back on this sort of thing and making sure that, that it's put right back smack bang in the middle of the policy agenda. Yeah. And and, and the cynic in me would, would suggest that actually the reason why we're not focusing on that is because it's not popular enough yet because in this country we're in quite a privileged situation that actually we're not going to feel the impact of the temperature rising as quickly as other areas of, of of the world so we don't get real wildfires here we don't get once uh, arable land going and turning into effectively a desert so we're not going to be impacted by that as quickly as some other people potentially and yet at the same time, the government does recognise this and actually they, they're spending more on military because we do know that there's going to be a finite amount of resources that we're all going to be fighting over in the next decades or so. So it's, it's going to be a real sort of uh, a real interesting time to be around. But actually as activists and as party members, this is something that we've really got to be fighting for because it's not just our futures, but it's the future of everyone on this planet and subsequent generations. So we really got to get get going and really get pushing for the most ambitious targets possible and not just feeding into the we're better than you rhetoric. So on that note, if we're all okay, we're going to move on now to the news I mentioned at the start of the podcast. So obviously lockdown has been lifted, but that doesn't yet mean that we can go 
running out to the pubs and restaurants and really enjoys enjoying the season festivities and all the rest of it. Lincoln itself is now in tier three. When we went into the lockdown a month ago, we were in tier one. So it's quite an escalation over that period. This tier three means that by and large, most things are going to remain shut. Barring shops, everything is going to remain shut down, takeaway only services. You're still going to be able to go to school for most people. They're still encouraging people to go to work if they have to. But they're still issuing the advice that obviously hands face space to try and keep the numbers down. Now, I was in town earlier. Obviously, this is day one of tier three Lincoln and it was chock-a-block. People were running around the shops. Now, it's important that we do support our high street and it's it's some unfortunate news that we've had about Debenhams and, and the Arcadia group this week. But actually, really, is it sensible to be doing that now? And, and could we actually find a way to support these businesses and keep them open, but also stop this 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 overcrowding of the centre of town? Now, the tier system was passed only last night with a vote in the House of Commons. Labour abstained on that vote, so I'll be coming around asking for your thoughts on that. But also the, the, the tier system that was abstained on and opposed by a number of Conservative MPs and a few Labour rebels who broke the whip to vote against it does have a clear north-south divide. Jokes were going around when the maps were published that this is a, a new uh, red wall, a red wall being tier three tier three areas that are now under a semi-lockdown as it seems and also the last point that's come out of the last couple of days is that pubs that will be shut due to the tier three regulations will receive a one-off payment of a thousand pounds which obviously will not go anywhere near replacing the income lost over the christmas period so bradley you've got your hand up do you want to come in on any of those points Sorry, can you hear me? My mic was playing up there. Yeah, we got uh, can you. Can anyone hear me? Yeah. Got you. Um, yeah, I, I mean, really, I think, um, I mean, I think the thousand pound for the pub thing is just ridiculous, isn't it? It shows that the Tories just completely, um, they've, they've got a complete lack of understanding of, of how, you know, how wide-reaching this crisis is and, and what, what needs to be done to get the economy back up to speed and, and to get people surviving this. The idea that you can chuck a small lump sum payment at, at small to medium businesses and that, that will do the job. It just shows their complete lack of understanding of the situation. Um, I, I think, I mean, for me, I, I was walking through town today as well to, to get my asymptomatic test um, as, as a student. And uh, I mean, what given given how I've already criticised the BBC and other outlets for, for how they reported on the, the tier announcements back back when they were first announced by the government, um, I uh, I I must say I'm I'm even more shocked by it because you know these these were described as stricter tier restrictions than last time, um, but you've got people walking in and out of Waterstones and the works and and basically every other shop on the high street, um, fair enough masked, but they're still going in in every sort of shop possible as far as I could see um this morning at at, at twenty past nine, um how how is that a stricter lockdown than what tier three was was before I, I don't quite understand that um. As far as I could see, it was pretty much life as normal, except for people wearing masks. Um, and I, 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 sh- I struggle, I really struggle with that, given the number of cases and deaths we still have each day. That even at tier three, at the top top tier restrictions, life looks pr- pretty normal, you know, in terms of when you look at the high street. Fair enough, there's more restrictions you can't quite see in terms of households meeting and all that sort of stuff. But uh, you know, I, I would probably also question whether those are the right things to restrict because surely, you know, hundreds if not thousands of people going through Primark on the high street, um, even with masks and, and trying to social distance, which you can't always do in a busy shop at the best of times. Um, you know, I, 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 surely even with masks, that's much more of a, of a risk factor than a couple, you know, than a, than a couple of families meeting in their living room. I, I would have thought. Um, so I, I really struggle with, with this idea that we're in a stricter set of tier lockdowns than before, um, looking around me um, uh, uh, this morning when I was coming back through town. Um, and I, I think 
I think we're in for a lot more excess deaths again when it comes to January. I think, you know, you've got the restrictions easing today and then we've got this sort of five-day grace period when it sounds like the government's saying you can do whatever the bloody hell you want um, for, for three days. Okay, fair enough, there's restrictions on any free households meeting. But, uh, you know, it, it, it seems to me that we've sort of just given up on the idea of trying to control the spread of the virus now. Um, and and that I I think I almost think the daily death figures have almost been bad for trying to contain the virus because isn't it incredible how desensitized to death we've become this year? If you if you told anyone on January first of, of this year, you you are going to see a disease spread around the world and you are going to get used to seeing every day two, three, four, five hundred people dying of it in in the UK, um, and and there'll be no outrage. No no one will batter an eyelid. You will get used to getting an update from BBC News on your phone that says 500 dead today from this disease. Isn't it incredible that we've become so desensitised to that now um, and, and the government seemingly doesn't give a shit about it? I, I think it's incredible where we're at now. Yeah. Yeah, and it's 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 it really is a, a process of this year. I can understand why people were frustrated. I can understand why people want to support the high street i can understand why people want to get out of their homes but ultimately we've got to consider what is what is the greater good what is going to save lives what is going to protect vulnerable people and fully able able-bodied people who are also being struck down by this horrific disease we've just got to take these steps over the next month two months three months because we've now today seen that a vaccine has been now approved for the uk market so therefore, this vaccine can now be rolled out, obviously, to the vulnerable and, and frontline workers first and foremost. But it's it's now probably, hopefully, the beginning of the end for this pandemic. So if people just stick it out for a few more months, if we put up with being made a bit uncomfortable by having to wear a mask, if we have to socially distance, if we stay inside that bit more, that's fine. I think that that's a positive if it means that we're saving people's lives that wouldn't have died otherwise. Yeah, I, can I just come in on that? So I, I can I completely get people's frustrations, um, and I mean to to some degree, like people can't be hyper vigilant all the time, can they? Like there's going to be slip ups. People are going to break the rules in little ways here and there af- after almost a year of restrictions. And, and like I, I I don't think we should be like highly moralistic about about that. Um, I think you know we're only in this position because the government has catastrophically failed almost every step of the way in handling this crisis. Um, you know, we, we were too late to lock down initially. We'd have an absolute shambles of a test and trace system. PPE orders were an absolute scandal. The the outright cronyism and corruption in, in all the sort of deals that have gone on behind the scenes in terms of awarding contracts without due, due process. Um, and, and a decision to, to go into lockdown late again a second time. It was like deja vu. It was Groundhog Day. And we had exactly the same failure of leadership from Boris and the rest of the cabinet yet again. So, you know, to some degree, I I get that people are going to go home at Christmas. I get that people are going to slip up or or twist the rules or break the rules here and there. Um, Because, you know, I'm I'm bloody fed up of it all. You know, you you can't be hypervigilant all the time. But the reason we've had to be is because of the government failing every step of the way. So, so for me, you know, it, it, it's not it's not about being highly moralistic to people. And it, it's about clearly looking at the failures of, of, of the government. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Ollie, have you got anything to add? Yeah, I'd just like to um, I'd just like to talk about how almost bizarre it is, as Bradley says, um, and reiterate those points. Um, my, my brother lives in, in Melbourne, in Victoria. Um, who had, you know, some of the worst um, COVID rates over the summer in, in Australia. Um, and not to compare apples and oranges, because obviously they're very different. But um, um, now now they've just gone there just over 30 days COVID free now, um, because they had, you know, very strict lockdowns. Um, and it, it was enormous. I think they were the country with, they were in lockdown in the country the most days in lockdown in, in the world because they've been in lockdown since march um and now now they're covid free and it's almost like life as usual again and it's it's incredibly strange to hear 
how starkly different that is to here. I mean, obviously you've got the the geological and the, the demographic um, like differences between the two, and I'm not trying to compare them in that sense, but it's just so bizarre to hear, <laughs> to hear that life as usual is almost going on there now and people can see each other again and, you know, everything's opening up again. And it, yeah, the, the vaccine, you know, might, might save us maybe next year, hopefully, um, cautiously optimistic, but it's just so, it's not as if they have, um, you know, uh, left wingers in government either. You've got Scott Morrison, um, who's the prime minister of Australia. And obviously a lot has been down to state leaders and they've been, you know, incredibly com- competent, but, yeah, it's just it's so strange. Mm. Mm. And I, I, I'd, I'd be intrigued in the in the aftermath of all this to see actually how the general public will look back at this. How will we look back at this pandemic as to whether it will be a series of mistakes or as an unavoidable disaster or as something in between? So. I, I, I'm obviously we've been quite critical and obviously it's, it's a difficult situation, but there's, there's countless failings as, as, as Bradley pointed out about the cronyism, about the, the failures to lock down, about the failures to introduce the right measures at the right time, about, about even attending Cobra meetings right at the start of the thing. So it's, it's, uh, it's definitely a, a really weird time to be, be, interested to even be not interested in politics and interested in how this is is playing out because actually it's affecting everyone and people that are are fed up as we rightly say we shouldn't judge them because most people have now lost a year of their lives and some people have actually lost their lives because of this so it's it's a a very strange time Bradley yeah just on how we'll we'll perceive it all I think that is a really interesting question um I think I think I was I was quite frustrated at the start of the pandemic in in that you know and throughout the whole the whole thing took on a culture wars almost edge didn't it and and you saw the sort of um you know the, the it, oh it's all a load of rubbish or oh actually Boris has done a fantastic job and all these things you're putting out are a load of nonsense um you know we almost it was almost like you know the opinions on COVID or or the, the government handling of it sort of almost split along the lines of, of the, the so called culture war. Which was which was really frustrating to see. So I was quite sceptical that the government were ever actually going to going to get any get it in the neck for their handling of the crisis. But I think if you, there is polling out there that suggests that actually, you know, I think it was the period was from uh, May to sort of September. Um, the, the the government is generally perceived in a in a more negative light in terms of how it's handled the crisis. I think all sorts of things have, have contributed to that. Is coming out as you know the the, the worst. Um, I can't remember what the official title now, or if it's true, or whether we keep swapping with Spain or what. But you know, what at least one of the worst death rates in in Europe, and and actually, you know, we're pretty high up there in terms of world tables as well. Um, I think you know the news of that and all the U turns over connected policy, like the the A levels fiasco and all that sort of stuff. I think a lot of that contributed to a more negative perception of of the government and how it dealt with it. Um. But the question is, is now the vaccine's on the way and, and we seem to have gotten ourselves quite near the front of the queue to, to get the vaccine. Um, will will the long-term memory of, of COVID be that actually Boris did as well as could be expected in a difficult time? I think that'd be a very incorrect way to summarise what has happened throughout this crisis. But in the long term, it, particularly if we get a vaccine out, rolled out quite quickly, so there's a lot of questions as to whether our government's capable of doing that after what we've seen over the last 10 months. Um yeah, you know, will that mean that the long-term impact of, of this, will, in terms of government popularity, will be minimal? Hmm. And and just one last question as as we start to wrap up. Obviously, we've had talking about the the government, how people view the government, but I I believe that this is a great opportunity for us to look at society, to look at how we do our our how we structure society, how we've perceive inequality how we perceive who gets what at what time and i think this is a great opportunity to make those meaningful proper changes that are actually going to make a big difference to people's lives so whether it be the green industrial revolution in a full and proper way whether it be making sure our nhs is properly funded properly staffed and have some of the best training standards in the world 
whether it be making sure that actually the north-south divide is bridged properly and the northern cities and towns that have shown throughout the pandemic to be fantastic places for standing up for their people, that they're given the right money and the right power to be able to speak up further for their people and deliver good quality services. I think this is a great opportunity to be able to discuss that and hopefully the Labour Party will be listening and, and hopefully come conference next year, hopefully September 2021, we'll be able to pass some of these great policies that are now coming out as a result of the pandemic and the rebuilding process that's going to come out of it. And that, and that's the point, isn't it, Callum? Because, you know, as terrible and as horrific and, and as devastating as this crisis has been, um, really, it's nothing more than a tessarin compared to what's coming down the line with climate change. Um, you know, e- even even uh, pandemics themselves become more likely in the climate change because of mountain permafrost and, and all that sort of stuff. So, the, you know, this this is the test room for the crises that are going to engulf the planet over, over the next century. And by God, have we failed it? Um, so, you know, the, the only answer to it really is, as we as we've said many times on this podcast, is is an organised left campaigning both in and out of the Labour Party, pushing policy in, in the party and, and in the in the country and in the world and in a, in a radical left direction mobilizing um communities behind these sort of more aspirational aims um it it's the it's the only way we're, we're gonna have a hope of, of doing better when the next crisis rolls around absolutely has anyone got anything to add to that as we wrap up on a positive note for once no i don't want to ruin it so uh, so go ahead <laughs> <laughs> brilliant and callum I don't, I don't know if he's there or if he's floating in and out, yeah. isn't it? <laughs> yeah. we'll, we'll take it as red. Um, so thank you all for listening once again to the 1201 podcast. We're happy to leave you on a, a more positive note for once. So I've been Callum Roper. I've been joined by Bradley Allsop. Thanks, folks. Uh, stay safe um, and I'll see you soon. I've been joined by Ollie Walwyn. Um, yeah, goodbye, everyone. Uh, yeah, stay safe. And been joined by Callum Watt, who is inaudible, but I'm sure he sends you all the best regards. Thank you all. Have a good week, and we'll see you again soon.